Don't let your past dictate your future. Hey everybody, welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host. And today I have special guest Marcy Pousset, who is an author and a trauma and resilience practitioner. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well too. It's not Monday anymore. So not yeah. Monday anymore. <laughs> I have my um my cocktail pop. <laughs> I have had those before. I think they're kind of sweet, aren't they? This one's been a winner of over 30 awards, including the Spirits International Prestige 2019 Double Gold. Um, yeah, I guess they are kind of sweet. I I don't know. I think I saw them at Costco or something, and, and I was like, oh, I didn't buy a cocktail. I don't know how to make them. So I still want to have, like, my crime over cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I got vodka. <laughs> oh, here we are. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I could not wait to have you. Aww, I just knew this was going to be fun. <laughs> it is. And here I come, complete with my cocktail pop. So I don't know how professional that is, but that's what we do on the show, right? That's what I heard. I need my scissors to get to my pop. <laughs> I'm taking full advantage of the experience that you create here. Well, thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, anytime. <laughs> <laughs> I stalked you a little bit. And you're a certified rehabilitation counselor and a certified trauma and resilience practitioner. You are a busy girl. I'm busy. (laughs) I saw the list of books. My mouth hit the floor. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And somehow still trying to figure out my life. You know how we can be busy and still trying to figure out what we want to be when we grow up? That's me. I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. But what I do know is that I've had enough life happen that I have something to offer. I guess that sounds like you have to have life happen to offer something. I don't actually agree with that. But what I mean is I've just had enough experiences that have been either hard or good that I've wanted to use then to give back to the world in some way. And so even while I'm still trying to figure out what to be when I grow up, in the meantime, I'm just helping people. Whether it's through the books or through the stage or podcast opportunities like this to be able to to share with people that they have value and they have worth and there's hope. Gosh, on on a recent interview I was on, the podcaster said, man, I kept thinking that hope was expectation. Like I was mislabeling the thing that I was calling hope. It was actually expectation and expectation always came with disappointment. And I want people to know like, no, there's actually always hope too. And, and what does that mean? And how do we claim it and live from it? And, and then how do we choose to live life in such a way that we're not handing over our stories to someone else's storytelling? That right. we're part of the storytelling. And that takes a lot of work and intentionality, but that's some of what I hope in the meantime while I'm figuring out what to do with my life that I can bring to people. (laughs) Well, I think you're already doing. Yeah. Thank you. I've always said that. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up, Mm -mm. but I love what I'm doing. And like I said before, you know, if I could just help one person, then I feel like all this was for something. Yeah. And haven't you been the one person for somebody else before and experienced the impact that another person being willing to be brave and show up 
and bare their soul in some way, right? How that impacted you or inspired you or, or led to some kind of shift in how you think about yourself or life. And so it's not a small thing. I know it's kind of, it's something I hear a lot. Like if I could just impact one person, reality is like, if you've been that one person, then it was worth it. Like, yeah, I would never Absolutely. want to be Brown to have taken down her TEDx talk like she wanted to do because she was so embarrassed by it. When in reality, it's touched so many people, but I know I've been one of them. Like, yeah, thank you for being brave. <laughs> Doing this, like I never in a million years thought that I would put myself in front of millions of people and just be like, you know what? Here I am. It's nerve wracking. It really yeah. can be. So you have to have a purpose. And if you don't have that purpose, I think it's going to show. Yeah. For sure. So I'm just curious as we get started, what do you see as your purpose? Why do you do this? I like to do this because a lot of people, we overlook the signs and they're always there, always. Or if it's domestic abuse, if it's an addiction problem, things of that nature, you never want to look for them. And sometimes we make excuses for them. So I think if we make it a little more known that actually it is common, but it's not okay. That's good. So your yeah. purpose is to help bring that message in front of people that we need to be aware of the signs around us so that we know what do you hope people will do differently if they see the signs. Get out, get help. People who are afraid to leave abusive relationships. A lot of times if you stay, you're in more harm than if you left. Yeah. And not only just that, but just the world right now is such a crazy place. Like if I go to Target at two o'clock in the afternoon, when I get in my car, the first thing I do is lock my doors because people are crazy. Yeah. We need to open people's minds to the possibility of what's out there. Yeah. And how to stay safe in it. Like, I almost hear you saying, like, I want to save lives. And it, yeah. my saving lives is physical. There's a physical element. But I think more people die every day at a soul level, at an emotional level, at at internal and visible levels than physically. And that's one of the things we miss when you're talking about missing signs. We also miss deaths, right? And we see these zombies essentially living life and they, they don't have to. They don't have to. Like, what if what if we knew what to look for to recognize decay in our own bodies? And I don't, again, mean physical. Like, decay in our right. soul, in our mind. I actually love that. I never looked at it at that aspect. And I love that. Yeah. And you're, that's part of your purpose. Like, that's what you're doing. You're like, you're like the forensic scientist up there. Hey, everybody, <laughs> let's start testing for decay. <laughs> I got my kit. <laughs> Where's my kit? Yeah, this is part of your kit. This, this podcast is part of that kit. But yeah, giving people an opportunity to, to get tested. Oh, gosh, what a world to say that in. <laughs> oh, oh, everybody just went, no, I'm not getting tested. <laughs> You can't make me. <laughs> oh, but yeah, I love that. I love it. It's, it's, I love how people have, okay, as humans, I do think that we have a community purpose. It doesn't mean everyone's living it, but we have a global purpose, right? Um, to care for each other and to care for the world that we've been entrusted. Like there are some things that we can do globally, but then I love how each of us within that seem to have our own unique wiring and purpose, both to sort of support that, but also just, for us. And then together that whole, like, we're better together. And it's so trendy, but it's still also true. Like we, we are better together. And when we see ourselves as part of a puzzle and are willing to, to be our piece, like the result is so much bigger. It's so much more profound than if each piece is trying to look like 
all the other pieces, you know? Like, I don't want to be this corner piece. I want to be the inside piece. And then we totally miss, <laughs> we totally miss the opportunities that we've been given within our own wiring, with our own abilities and our strengths and our passions to show up the best that we can in this world and make it better in the way that we can. And you're doing that. Like, I don't bring that back to you, but you're like, I didn't know I'd be doing this, but I care about people and I care about them seeing the signs and being healthy and whole and saved from things that could just be hard and don't need to be, or where there's places of safety and they just don't know. And here you are finding yourself using this platform and this channel to do it. And it's so cool because that's not my platform or channel and we need you to offer it to people (laughs) so that our voices can combine and our missions can combine and we can do the cool things that we do. So thank you. I'll start there with. Oh, well, thank you. No, I love it. Absolutely love it. Together. We all stand stronger. So I agree. I believe it. Thank you for everything that you do. One of the books that you wrote is called while we slept. Do you want to get into what happened with that book? Mm -hmm. Swallow my cocktail pop. I love it. (laughs) Is it good? It is good. It's rum and cola. Ooh. I should have gotten an affiliate link for this company of some kind. Like, (laughs) maybe you can get a sponsorship. Cut water, pops. Support Tiffany. (laughs) I'm over cocktails. Support her. Sponsor. I'm going to send it to them. (laughs) (laughs) It's good stuff. Um, Yeah. So this story, While We Slept, Finding Hope and Healing After Homicide, is a story that really, um, the book began with me journaling as I was reeling through what you can imagine, just with the title, um, reeling through this unexpected life event. And I've always written and journaled as a way of processing my world, a little bit of memorializing it too, like knowing that my memory one day might not be the same. And I want to know who I was then and what I thought and what I felt. At some point, one of the journalists who'd been part of our regular life, like we got to know some journalists, said, how are you guys okay? Like I do a lot of crime stories and he shared one too. Like there was a neighbor very close to us whose pregnant wife had been shot in a drive-by gang shooting and died. Both Mm -hmm. the baby and the mom died. And he went to interview that husband, did the interview. And then that same day that husband killed himself. What? Yeah. And this was like around the corner from my house. And so by the time he gets to us again, like this is, we're like friends now. Because as I tell the story, it was long, you know, um, he, he was just like, how, why? Like, there's something different about your story and about your journey. How are you okay? And I remember either answering or thinking like, I'm not okay. <laughs> like, I'm not okay. Um, but he clearly saw something different in my not okayness than from some of like, from this man who had literally no hope and only despair and had lost everything to take his own life. And so the book actually became a way that I could answer that question to tell the story, to bring dignity to the people in it and to tell the fullness of the story. Because once you Google things, you get like this soundbite of one person's thoughts and that eventually they disappear. So there's like two articles left online and they just say the things they say. And I felt like putting the story out in the world, I could give the full, the full picture instead of the soundbite. So what happened was, what what happened was, what happened was, (laughs) What did, what did I say they were called? I, I need to be back. Hot <laughs> water spirit pops. Cutting out to say, remember, drink wisely or suck wisely. I don't know. <laughs> it's a whole nother show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so what happened was, um, I know I'm like laughing. 
thing. And then I'm going to say what I say next. And I'll say too, like, there's always a level of awareness that when I share my story, it's so normal for me now, all these years later. But for a lot of people, it's like I drop a little bit of a bomb. So warning, you might feel like I'm dropping a bomb when I share the hard thing, which was four days before my first wedding anniversary. So newlywed, uh, we are living in the same home as my in-laws who were, my mother-in-law was about to retire, like within a month, less than a month from teaching at the local university. And they were moving back to Columbia where my father-in-law was from. And our house had been, was their house. We were taking over and owning it. They were leaving. And then there was a little mother-in-law suite. So they were going to be able to store some things there, come back and visit as they needed. You know, my mother-in-law was like, no pressure, but when you have children, we'll have a place to stay. And I'm like, we're not having children yet. So we just shared this space in the transition. And um, so four days before my first wedding anniversary, we woke up to a phone call and it was the ambulance on the phone asking if someone in the house had been hurt. And, oh, you know what? Just, I should read my book. What happened? I write the things. What I'm trying to remember was the phone call first or my father-in-law waking us up. But however it went first, it's in the book, is that he also came and knocked on our door and said, hey, Jeremy, your mom is hurt. And the way he said it, I was, I'm not a morning person. And I was waking up just, just waking up. And I just remember thinking like, get her band-aid. Like, you don't have to come down the hall to tell us she's hurt. Because it didn't sound urgent. He just kind of had, was like, hey, Jeremy your mom is hurt. You know, and I'm like, okay, go get her band-aid. Let me sleep. We were having to get up soon. We were leaving that day for 10 days to leave the country for a trip. Then maybe the phone rang and it was the ambulance of somebody hurt. So I think that's when we, when we realized like, oh, this might be more than a band-aid kind of situation. So the gist of it is that he killed her down the hall in some kind of psychotic blackout. He has no memory of the incident. Somewhere between killing her and walking down the hall to our room, he came out of it and woke us up. And he also was the one who called the police. And they've said that they had a pretty good idea, even from the phone call, that he might have done it. Because they could just tell he wasn't totally in his right mind. And he wasn't. He was like sleepwalking or something. So we can only guess. After they diagnosed him with two forms of dementia, and one of them was stroke-induced. So did he have a stroke? Was it like a psychotic stroke fit? I don't even know if those happened, but was it, it would, did something like that happen in his stroke? He was at the time 76, and he was already acting very paranoid about things. So there were already some personality things in place that we were noticing. Like, oh, right. he's getting older, you know? Not murderous, just older. And, and paranoia around money and like, was his wife having an affair with the gardener? Like just some, you know, interesting things. You're like, oh, he is getting older. And also he had been in the days before talking a lot about insomnia and not being able to sleep because of back pain. So did he like get into a hallucination that's insomnia based? That does happen. He was on some medicine that shouldn't have been mixed with alcohol and there was like a beer missing. So was it all of it put together? We, we don't know. And I think in some ways, that's still the hard part. Cause if you don't know, how do you stop it from happening again? Right? Like how do you, or how do you, when you talk about the signs, like how do you catch that in somebody else? Other people are paranoid. I remember sitting in my um, counseling program because my, my professional world is all therapy and social services and trauma and resilience. And you said some of that. I remember sitting in my, my class and the teacher saying something like, you know, just because someone has like Alzheimer or dementia, like doesn't mean we need to be afraid of them. Their personality is changing and they're different, but it doesn't mean they're dangerous. And I'm like shaking in my seat, you know, and I'm so aware that 
that's probably the norm. But here I am, the victim of someone with dementia who did kill somebody. And I'm feeling like she's just now telling everyone that they're all 100% safe all the time. There's no reason to be afraid. And I'm like, I'm sure that's mostly true, but not in my, you're talking about science. Like, I'm going to go back to that. Like, can we just tell people that sometimes it happens? (laughs) Absolutely. And it was just because of my experience. That was it. And was it even because of the dementia? We don't know. So I, it's hard to even, even say, um, Do you fully believe that was it? Or do you think there is maybe some malice there? There's all these mysteries, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I never saw any. You know when you watch the news after some crazy neighbor does murdery things and everyone's like, oh my gosh, he was the most gentle, kind man in the whole world. And he probably was, right? Like, how could he? We never have saw. They were just the perfect, picture-perfect family. And um, that was him. He is still the most gentle, kind person. I mean, he's 86 now. And no, I must not have said his right ears earlier because it's been 16 years. I'm not going to worry about all the math right now, but he's older. And if he's not properly medicated, there's definitely a side of him that comes out that's very critical and paranoid. And so was it that? Was it that like he now had these degrees of mental illness, but hadn't been seen yet, wasn't properly medicated you know I don't know it was there malice I don't know um I know that in his paranoia he did wonder if and accuse her of hiding lots of money and and keeping it secret from him he did he did accuse her of having an affair with the gardener because she'd lost a lot of weight and so he assumed maybe that was why like none of it was rational it's always the pool boy it's the I know they didn't didn't have a pool so it was the gardener (laughs) (laughs) I don't know like I didn't necessarily I think like in his healthy self no in his unmedicated concoction of whatever was going on. He had been paranoid about burglary and there hadn't been one, but he did some strange things to like protect us from the possibility of burglaries, right? Like one day he took the um, the license plate, the license plate off of my husband's car and we didn't know, but as we were going out to the car, he's like, oh son, I, um, I took the license plate off so that nobody could steal it. So here you go. Like, <laughs> like that where you're like, oh, thanks, thanks dad. You know, most most cars keep theirs on at night. <laughs> the stuff like that where it wasn't, it wasn't because there had been like a local license plate robbery. It was just the way that his mind was thinking. He he had taken some like storage bins and lined them up in different places to like block a burglar. So she had gone out for a walk that morning as she normally did. She would go out recycling. She was like trying to lose weight, but couldn't just lose weight. She had to be productive at the same time. So she was collecting cans and bottles so she could recycle. And so what we can see is that she came in and she locked the door behind her and then was killed. And so it could even be that in that blackout, he thought she was a burglar because he was so fixated on burglary. Um, Right. But then something jarred him out of it to where he saw her and knew she needed help, but seemed to legitimately have no concept that he caused the harm. But he was covered um, with blood splatter from his hat down to his shoes. So he, you know, the what friend, did he use? He used a hammer and a bat. Ooh. Mm. I know. And he was, what did I, I think I said 76 earlier. Maybe it was, she was 67 and he was 73. So the adrenaline needed to do something like that for, I mean, he wasn't unfit, but he was also kind of fragile, you know, was something otherworldly too, right? Like he just on his own, I don't even know, would have had the strength to do that kind of damage, but in whatever psychotic blackout he was in, like he had the adrenaline to do something like that and not know. I mean, the crime scene was pretty bad. I can imagine with those two objects, that's, I, I got a flash in my head. Of, I'm sorry. Like, I know I always have. Oh no, I'm the one who asked. <laughs> Nosy Rosie. 
I'm not going to drink my cocktail. <laughs> that water spirit pops. Cut to the commercial. Need <laughs> to be a sponsor. Um, yes, I love it. I'll just bring the, the the humorous relief in the middle. That's perfect. So, was he prosecuted, or what happened? Yeah, so I think we never had to go to trial. It was, in California, you're not allowed to inherit from somebody you murdered. But then they were trying to decide if, what if you were insane? Like, how do you interpret the law then? So there was a there was a process of both trying to, like, interpret and understand that and then determine in what way to charge him. And so he ended up being charged with, uh, I'm going to need to read my own book again, he ended up being charged with innocent by reason of insanity, which which at the time bothered me because the word innocent there, I felt like should, just because you're, you acted in a fit of insanity shouldn't deem you innocent. But they felt there was enough evidence to determine that he really didn't know what he was doing and therefore didn't have intent, is my understanding. So they put him in a mental hospital at least then? Yeah. So for the first few years, he was in our local jail while they were trying to figure it out. They were not qualified to medicate him to the degree to which he needed to be medicated. Mm -hmm. And so we had a very difficult father-in-law at that time. Like, you know, his paranoia continued. He was sure my husband was on drugs. That was like his constant thing. Like, son, you've got to stop doing drugs. You know, and my husband's not, I'm not doing drugs. <laughs> but there was just this constant fixation on, on these stories that were in his head. Even in the jail cell, he was sure they were sending fumes in through the vents, trying to poison him. So he would like sleep under the TV as far away from the vent as he could. Maybe, maybe they do that in jails. I've never lived in one, but I just, it didn't seem like, I mean, just didn't seem like that's probably what was happening. He almost sounds schizophrenic. Yeah, yeah, there's some stuff. And I know that he is much better on the right kinds of medication. So then he did get sent to a state prison for like mentally ill people. And that was challenging too, though, because then he was there with a bunch of like 20, 30, 40 year old men who were violent and who were consistently demonstrating insanity. And he wasn't, he, he on medication, he was just like a regular kind of 73 year old man or at that point, 76, 78. Like, so he didn't really fit into that environment, even though he qualified. And so after some time, the system determined that he qualified for a CONRAP program, which allows him to live inside of the community within which he was charged, but under some level of surveillance. So he now is able to live like in an assisted uh, living kind of home, but monitored. I mean, you know, and he's in group therapies and individual therapies and medications are monitored and yeah, I, I, what I said earlier too, that part of the story was about dignity. I, some of it was his, like there was, there were some family members who didn't love that I was going to tell any portion of the story. I mean, I'm telling mine, it's the only one I can tell, but obviously people they loved are part of my story and they couldn't imagine there being good intent behind it, even though there was, that's all I had. I, I don't generally as a person like I'm just I'm an Enneagram nine. I want the world to be peaceful and harmonious and happy. I don't want to use my voice and stand out. I don't want to be in the spotlight. I don't want attention. I don't want conflict. And so when that was their assumed motive, it was it was so um hard. It was so disconnected from who I am that there was even like, Do you guys know me? And would you want to read it first? Like I was I prepared people and gave them opportunities to read it before it was published. And the point of it is that when you would search him. All it would say is like, insane man kills his wife. And that is a piece of what happened, but it's not the only thing that happened. And it's not the sum of who he is. And it's not the sum of the forgiveness that's happened there and the healing that's happened there. And 
or, you know, it can't even begin to touch the compassion that we should have for someone who literally woke up one day and was told you killed your wife and he has no memory. I mean, can you imagine if that's the truth of the situation, right? And I'm, I'm assuming it is that how do you live the rest of your life with yourself, knowing that you were in some kind of state that caused you or in which you chose to kill your spouse? Like the compassion. That's, that's hard. Can you imagine? And so it's so easy for a news article to say crazy man kills his wife. It's a whole other thing to imagine that human trying to live out the rest of his life with that reality. And it's hard enough when you chose to do something and now you're living out the consequences. And it's a whole other thing when you don't have any memory of it. I remember my husband kind of challenging him like for a while, really wanting him to acknowledge what he did and how, how could he in some ways. And I think we were for a while trying to feel out, does he or does he not know? You know, what does he remember or not remember? Or And I just remember at some point my father-in-law saying, like, yeah, all the evidence points at me. If I weren't me and I were just looking at the evidence, I would say that guy did it. But I have no memory of doing it. Like, how do you live with that? I can't, I can't even imagine. So part of why I wrote the book was to tell the full story of who he is. Not just the crazy man who murdered his wife, but who was he before that? And who is he after that? And and what is it like to the best that I could witness and observe? Be that person. And does he deserve any dignity or compassion or love or forgiveness? And then how do you even begin to give those things, right? Like those didn't just, I'm not just a magical little fairy who can hand out forgiveness when when something like that is stolen from you and in such a brutal way. So it took time and it took processing through all the grief and the anger, but I also got to see him in the process. And yeah, I guess I have that ability. Some of us do, right? We call it perspective shifting a little bit to like put myself in his shoes and feel the compassion that, that I would want. Man. So that's the purpose of the book is to answer the question, like, how are we okay? Which some of it was just my faith being my anchor needing something bigger than my circumstances to hang on to in the midst and having a hope or a belief that like someone that God was able to, to still be good and still be sovereign in the midst of all this crazy. So where I feel like I'm tossed into the storm, like he's not. And so there was a whole element of my faith that allowed me to be grounded and anchored in a different way, allowed me to see the situation sometimes more truthfully than some others whose survival brains were trying to make up stories because they didn't have the same kind of narrative I had, or they weren't there. Like my husband's sister lost both parents and she wasn't in the house at the time. There's both like a gift in that, but also a a loss in that. Like, right. Right. So she's got her own journey with it and her own story to tell, but there's that piece too. So I tried to answer the question, how are we okay? And then how can I use this story to both memorialize this wonderful human, my mother-in-law, but also give the fullness of the story and the dignity that he deserves as, a, as somebody who was caught up in this too, a victim in his own way. Yeah. Well, you are not to blame for any of the negative headlines. He did that himself. So that had nothing to do with you. That was his actions. They were going to call him that anyways. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. Yeah. That's what happened. And that's what I said too. Like, they're not wrong. They just don't give the fullness of the, the picture, you know? Uh, that's our media. <laughs> that's our media right and that's they tell the headlines that sell and that get attention and it's it's a big one like it's not every day that the local university professor who's highly esteemed and about to retire is murdered by her husband at home with her son and daughter-in-law down the hall like it's it is a crazy story and they can't tell the whole thing but i can and i did while we slept (laughs) where can you find that 
It is on, it's anywhere that books are sold. So you can get it on Barnes and Noble, um, generally online. I know that not every book is on every shelf in every store. So generally, if you search for it online through my website, marcypusey.com, you can get it there. If you get it through my website, I sign it if you want to send it off. Yeah. Amazon, places like that. The print book is the only book I have licensed to include all of the news articles. So I went back to the journalists and the news um, and, and bought, they're not cheap, but I bought all the rights to include those, but I had to pay per format. So I chose to put them in the print book. So there is a Kindle book. It doesn't have this, the news articles included. I can't believe you have to pay for that. I had to pay a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought they were such a valuable piece of the story and they showed in some ways they validated what I was saying or filled in pieces of it, but it also just brought like, this is real life. Like, it's not just me telling my story. Like, here are the, I put the news articles in at the times where they were happening in the story. Um, so you get to see for yourself what was being said and how it was being interpreted and understood. I think that's important. It makes people feel like they're there. They're taking the journey with you. And I also, like, as much as it was for his dignity and her legacy and to answer the question, it's also like a scrapbook for me. Like, even at the beginning, I was like, I have to reread my own book. I'm, how old was he? Or who, how, what was the sequence of things? Like, it has memorialized what happened. I don't have to rely on my memory as the years go by. And my kids have this also, like, it's part of their family history now. And they have it to remember. Um, I include pictures in there as well. Again, partly because this was like my scrapbook in addition to all the other things or something I could pass down to them. Like, this is your, your grandma that you didn't get to meet and your grandpa who you did get to meet, but other pieces of who he is and other pictures. And yeah. So it's something that I am, am proud of in that regard. I feel like I did a good job of letting, sharing her with the world and completing the story for him, but also having something that we can have as a family that keeps the, the information kind of concrete and intact as time passes and our memories fade or this generation dies or whatever. Yeah. No, very good. And I mean, it helps you self-heal. That was the part about how it started through my journals. And one of the things that I do now is I'm trauma and resilience certified and I'm a story coach. So I'll often put those together and say I'm a, cert a trauma certified story coach because I help people tell their stories. Often that's through publishing. So I have a lot of publishing services that help people get from wherever they are to having a book in their hands because it's such a, a powerful way of, I don't know, I feel like when we put our stories into the world, there's all these people who can go, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. Like, Here's somebody like laying out my cards. Maybe they look a little different, different setting, different names, but like, I'm not alone. That's, that's happened before. Today, I got an email from someone who bought this book and another book and shared some of his story with me. And it was like, yeah, we are taking in children whose dad killed their mom while they were sleeping in the house. And I'm like, I'm not alone. Like, I don't want anyone else to have to experience it. But there's this connection that happens when you realize your story is not like in a silo in the world. When you let it out, it connects with people for lots of different reasons. So part of it for me was healing. Even rereading it at times, I'll still cry about parts of it. Still. Oh, um, sure. Because, yeah, because it's going to be a lifelong loss of her life in my children's lives, in my life right now. But also now I've been able to offer it as a source of healing for others. And I have gotten feedback from people who are in the story, like the investigator who was on the case was someone I was able to go back to. And I had him read the book before I published it just to make sure my facts were accurate. And he was like, just happened to be in his own life circumstance. We're coming back to this story and hearing my side of it because he hadn't. He'd just been the investigator. Got his side. Mm. Like, 
it influenced how he was about to show up in a courtroom for a different case. Um, and that was like a healing experience for him because in his line of work, he had been perpetrated against. And so he was able to go in with a different level of compassion than the anger that he only had felt. Um, I might be not telling that story totally accurately, but that's how I remember it. So now having experienced that personally over and over again with different books, I want other people to have that same journey. And then being that I'm professionally a therapist and I've spent a lot of time digging into trauma and trauma recovery and the brain, I totally geek out on the brain. I now also have seen how the best kind of trauma support, trauma recovery support is sensory activities. So anything that's allowing your body to express itself and as uncensored as possible, really the better. And so that could be through music. It could be through dance. It can be through fine art, whatever it is, but it can be through writing as well. And so unbeknownst to me, while I'm constantly telling this story to myself in writing, I'm tapping into the part of my brain where this event is either stuck or wanting to be stuck and continuing to help it process through my brain into healthier parts so that I could heal. And then I put it out in the world. And one of the first reviews I got, or maybe it was like, somebody wrote to me and she was like, Hey, I've been in bed depressed for a long time, contemplating like taking my own life. And I came across your book. And then I read it and decided, well, gosh, if she can overcome that, I can get up today and drink some water and get dressed. And so this woman began to like live her life because she thought if I could do that, she can get dressed and drink water, you know? And I'm just like, what? <laughs> we don't know the ways that our story. <laughs> it's a compliment, but at the same time, we're kind of like, oh. <laughs> yeah. And to think that like, yeah, who knew, you know, who knew? Nobody knows how putting your story well, you know, being intentional with it and thoughtful and learning how to do it well and can impact another person's life in such a way. And I, when I say that, I begin to talk about it through the lens of stewardship. Like now you've been entrusted with your life stories and you have a responsibility and an opportunity to help people get out of bed and get dressed and drink some water for maybe the first time in months and months when they really just thought they should die and not live and, or give yourself the opportunity to dust off some of those cobwebs and stop living from this brainstem trauma thing that keeps triggering for you and disrupting other parts of your life. Like, no, let's not do that anymore. Let's learn how to wrestle with our own stories in a healthy way so that we get to experience the healing of it. But then we also get to put that into the world for the health and healing of other people too. No, I love it. And it's so important. Everyone has to do self-love. You have to, you have to take time for yourself. You have to love yourself. you got to learn yourself. People need to know their worth. That's a big problem. Yep. Yeah. And I think a lot of the stories that I want to say we keep hidden, but by that, I mean, like we keep pushing them down. They keep trying to come up and out. And that's some of what I say, like the triggers or the associations that keep disrupting us because they're connected to something behind us. You know, that's, that's because there's some shame attached sometimes shame and pain and fear, like, you know, all of them. When we can go back to some of those stories and imagine them going a little differently. This is a therapeutic work that I wish all therapists were using in their trauma work. We mistreat trauma most of the time in traditional therapy. But if we could go back and do some imagination work, like, okay, if I could go back, let me give an example real quick. I woke up that morning and someone I loved killed someone else I loved while I was asleep with my door wide open when I was vulnerable and could have been killed too. My husband also, my husband also woke up to the same circumstance, but I took on the message that now when I, when I'm asleep, I'm never safe. 
I'm not safe when I sleep because people walk around killing your loved ones and they might even be your loved ones. So that, how can you be safe ever sleeping with anyone in the house ever? The story that I took on was like around safety, around like, there was some shame. Like, how dare I think I could go to sleep and be safe? My mother-in-law, I feel it right now. My mother-in-law is gone because I thought we were safe to sleep. Like, what if I had known better? And I could have protected her. Like, what if, what if I hadn't slept so soundly because I thought I was safe and I could have woken up and I could have helped her? Like, none of that's helpful because it's so unrealistic, but it's easy to take on that message and carry it around, right? On the other hand, like my husband, same exact circumstance, interpreted it like, wow, that was a fluke thing. That doesn't happen, but it did this one time. And he can still sleep soundly. I mean, I... Unfortunately, we're not married, but um, was able to sleep soundly. Like it didn't have the same message carried attached to it. Like, I don't know all of his internal, should I have been awake or not awake, but it didn't impact him and disrupt his sleep from then on out because he was able to interpret it as just that one incident. So if we go back and we're trying to tell our own stories, if I take myself back and I just imagine it differently, like now I'm in the bed and I wake up and I learn this, you know, what if I imagine myself knowing what I know now? And I just imagine myself sitting up and going, oh, this is so hard and this is devastating and this is a fluke thing. And man, I was safe in my bed. My husband was right here with me. The ambulance was coming. It was a long walk down the hall. He came out of it like I was safe while this thing was happening. Like if I can go back and imagine a different situation, if I can imagine myself stronger or even imagine myself doing something different. It doesn't change what happened, but it actually gives my body a physiological experience with what I'm imagining. And it begins to shake up some of what's stuck as trauma. And we don't, we don't do that enough, right? Like whether we're fictionalizing the story through our imagination, whether we're telling it for the world to have as nonfiction, our ability to dust off those cobwebs and do the hard work of sitting with the pain and the discomfort. I can't go back and imagine myself in that story without being back in the room waking up in the middle of a murder. And a lot of us want to not do that. Like did it once. I don't want to go back there. (laughs) Right. And it, maybe it's a rape. Maybe it was, maybe it was abuse. Maybe it was nine 11, like whatever it was for people. Once we've survived something hard, we don't want to go back, but part of our healing involves us going back, but safely, right? Like in the safety of today, grounded, hopefully with, you know, good community support around us, whether we're writing it out, whether we're in the therapist's office who's trained for it, whether we're dancing it out, (laughs) writing songs, whatever it is, but allowing ourselves to imagine ourselves back in that place while we're safe today and see ourselves stronger. It actually builds resilience into us for now. But the hard part is like touching it, right? We don't, we don't, it just, we don't want to touch it. It's, it's scabbed over. That sounds a lot like PTSD. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure you were scared to sleep, just like other things of that nature. And I think that's totally normal. Yeah, I took on that message. And it's gotten a lot better through the years. I couldn't sleep with, I had to have the door locked. I had everything locked, locked, secured, all locks. Generally, for the most part, I don't need that anymore. There are still moments and they're so random. There's just days or moments where I'm like, oh, today's a door lock day. You know, and again, they're like so infrequent now, but I think it's partly because I've done the work and it doesn't mean like, oh, I arrived. My brain will never associate sleep with something negative again. No, it's probably going to come up because it'll get dusty back there and I'll have to go back and like do some dusting. But for the most part, because I've been willing to, well, just I'm saying willing, but the reality is I wasn't writing to heal. I was writing to, because that's what I do to process my life. What I didn't realize was that that happened to be a healing agent. 
for me. And now that I have that awareness, I can help other people do that with awareness and to do it in a way that that is supportive of the healing process. Things like that, you're you're never going to get over it ever. I mean, that's with you. It's actually made you a part of who you are today. So you carry that, but instead of carrying it as a burden, you need to carry it as like a badge of honor because you got to think of everything that you went through and you're still, you're up, you're standing, you're helping others and you learned and you progressed. And that's what people really need to take in. It's not about everything that you've been through. It's everything you've accomplished. Hmm. That's good. That's so good. It makes me think about how, okay, in the Bible, there are different stories where people went to war and they won the battle and God would say, okay, take a rock, take a big stone and set it in this place and let it remind you of what you overcame here. Let, let it remind you of what happened in this place. And then when the kids ask like, why is that big stone sitting there? You can keep telling the story and reminding yourself and reminding them of what can be done, what can be overcome. And it makes me think of that in our own lives that we can either hang on to those stories only as destructive messages and refuse to like engage the world in a healthy way ever again. Or we can see those as stones that we're piling up as reminders to ourselves of like, man, look what I can overcome. And as that pile gets bigger, <laughs> and it will, um, yes. when we're in our next challenge, we can look back and say, yeah, but look at what, like in my case, like what, look what God has done for me before, but also look what I've been able to survive and not just survive, but like, I'm now a really healthy functioning adult. Like I'm not defined by those things I've actually been strengthened by them like you said now there's this badge of honor that I've overcome it and that is so important for our bodies to experience too and our there's like a muscle memory in us that is part of what resilience is resilience is I've survived something that I wasn't sure I could survive because your brain isn't sure but it's going to utilize all of its strategies and I survived it I was capable so then when the next hard thing comes along your brain is like oh we survive things right and so you enter it in a totally different way and each time more and more so like Right now, perspective changes a little bit. The perspective changes and you don't even necessarily have to have a conscious awareness of it. It's, it's just how you're now beginning to show up in the world. It's how things impact you. Does it mean that the next like devastating thing won't be full of grief and loss and heartache and struggle? No, there's a really great quote. I just saw that said something like, just because she's strong enough to carry the weight doesn't mean it isn't heavy. I love that, right? Because we can begin to think like, well, if I were healthy, this wouldn't be so heavy. (laughs) Like, No, it's still heavy, but you can carry it now because you develop strength along the way. And strength. I like that. It's so good. Well, I need it because it's easy for me to judge my own sense of like success based on how things feel sometimes. Like, well, this feels hard. Therefore, I've made no progress. Like, no, sometimes the best and most worthwhile things are still hard and heavy, but we've now developed some grit and some resilience and some strength to be able to carry it. And yep, we're sweating. Um, And I think for me, sweating looks like tears. So I might be crying too, but I'm getting through it and it's equipping me for the next thing too. You have to release. You got to let it out. That's, it's so important. I love it. I love it. That's my word for this year. Release. Yes. Mary, you just said it. Do you have you, do you pick words? Do you have a word theme? A word theme? Yeah. Like some people like contemplate a word that they would like to think about throughout the year or to have sort of as a filter or focus through the year. And so this year, the word that kind of came to me was release. I don't like that word. It sounds like not being in control, which I don't think of myself as a control freak of any kind, but still release is kind of like, well, what if I don't want to? (laughs) (laughs) But 
it causes me now to see it everywhere, right? And a lot of the ways that it's being highlighted for me are healthy forms of release. Like what if I released myself from the shame of not waking up that morning to save her? Like, or what if I, how, how did you just use it? Like releasing the the burdens that like. Well, yeah, because everyone, they, they keep it and it's just, it's, it's like your rock, you know what I mean? It's on you. But instead, if you can lift the rock, release it off of you, you can breathe again. And you can fly. <laughs> Maybe that's your word this year, fly. Uh, yeah. Ooh, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes I pick words that I love. and other words, I'm like, the other years, I'm like, oh, I don't like this word, but it won't go away. So I know it's the word. And then I look for the good in it. Like, yeah, there's probably something that needs to be released. <laughs> 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 that needs to fly. Yes. Meanwhile, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Uh, Me too. Water spirit pops. <laughs> they have other flavors inside of the container, and they're yummy. <laughs> Award-winning. <laughs> I had so much fun. Like, we should do this again. I'd be happy to. We can talk about relationships. Yes, relationships. Yes, because I've been talking about a story with my husband, and that's a new situation, too. Different than this book. <laughs> but yeah, I'd be happy to come back here. I love what you're doing, and um, it's, it's so good to be mindful of the signs and people. And I know we didn't talk necessarily about the signs to look for if your spouse or in-law or loved one is about to kill a family member, but even just the signs in ourselves, like for me to recognize, you know, it is okay to have trouble sleeping after an event like this, but also I don't want it to continue to disrupt me. That event is over. Like what's the good work I can do to, to live a more healthy recovery from this situation you know and so there are signs like that where we can feel ourselves being disrupted in life by something that's happened in the past and that's usually a good sign that there's some cobwebs that need attention need some dusting probably need a story coach to help them walk through telling their story absolutely (laughs) that's a good plug huh (laughs) how would people want to get a hold of you if they do want a story coach yeah, so you can find me at marcypusey.com, and uh, that will lead you to all the things I do. I My TEDx talks are there. Actually, my second TEDx talk, I, I talk about some of the story as well, and in light of us being more than our traumatic experiences, like that they're not how we're defined. And I'm also fairly active on Instagram, so at Marcy Marie, if anyone's over there, come find mm-hmm. me, and I'm often sharing things about trauma, abuse, recovery, resilience, um, and then random things like mermaids sometimes and <laughs> that's the only random thing that came to mind <laughs> random things <laughs> now you have to go find me to figure out why did she bring up mermaids i don't know <laughs> thank you so much again i mean i i try to say this any opportunity i'm given but i just i feel honored to be invited to be in front of your audience i know that you're protective of them you care about them that this is a sacred space and i never take it lightly to be entrusted to be part of it so thanks for what you're doing um, giving this listeners an opportunity to both learn signs, but also get some entertainment through like real life stories and, and to like just take in what happens in the world. Um, but you just have such a beautiful heart for people too. And I appreciate that. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Until next time then. <laughs> yes. Until next, we'll have part two. I'll bring a different flavor because there's multiple flavors. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We must try them all. No. <laughs> all right, you guys, that's it for tonight's show. Make sure you like, follow, and subscribe. If you're interested in sharing your story, go to crimeovercocktails.com and you can leave me a message there. 
Also, while there, there are important phone numbers if you need to reach out to somebody. All right, you guys, we'll talk crime another time. Bye.